We are living through the midst of a crisis. On August 12th, 2017, a Nazi sympathizing white supremacist crashed his car into a group of leftist protesters, killing one and injuring 19 more in Charlottesville. That terrible attack took place less than two months after an enraged supporter of Bernie Sanders walked onto a baseball field in Alexandria, Virginia and opened fire on a group of Republican congressmen who were practicing for an annual charity baseball game. Of course, we could go on and on listing events of horrible violence that have happened uh, in the U.S. or in other Western countries over the last many years. But we all know that those statistics would only, that, that those events just are the tip of the iceberg and that they could be matched with statistics that point, to, point even further in the direction of uh, the reality that we are living through a time of deep cultural turmoil. And the question for God's people is, how will we respond? How do we respond to the times that we are living through? Increasingly, I think the response uh, from all sides to events like this is to shift blame onto our enemies and to, onto our political opponents. And I'm increasingly convinced that the crisis that we are living through culturally could be described as a crisis of responsibility, a lack of responsibility. Perhaps you've had this experience, we've just moved and redone everything in our lives, which means I have had this experience numerous times in the last couple of months, uh, where you are calling a customer service phone number because something has gone wrong, a bill is not right, something's gone missing, something's not working the way that it's supposed to be, and you call a customer service number expecting to get the issue resolved about what you end up getting is a lengthy explanation of why they are not to blame and they are not going to do anything. We're living through a time where there is a crisis of responsibility. Nobody is responsible for anything. I've just finished reading a book called Visions of Vocation by Stephen Garber in which he asked this question that's been rattling around in my brain for the last couple of weeks. The question he asks is this, given what I've seen, what am I responsible for? Given what I've seen, what am I responsible for? I love that question. It's not whose fault is this? It's not who is to blame? It's not how can I avoid responsibility? But given what I know, given what I've experienced, given who I am, given the resources at my disposal, how am I implicated in this problem for the sake of my neighbor, for the sake of God himself? The way that we answer that question informs our vocation in the world. This morning, this weekend, I want to invite you to look with me at Luke chapter 13, where Jesus, I think, uh, addresses that question. What are we responsible for? I'm going to read Luke 13, verses 1 through 9. It says this. There were some present at that very time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. 
or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them? Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, sir, let it alone for this year also, until I dig around it and put on manure. Then, if it should bear fruit next year, well and good, but if not, you can cut it down. And this is God's word. Okay, this is an admittedly weird passage. <laughs> this is one of those, those passages where it feels to me often like looking at, uh, you know those 3D paintings where everything's fuzzy, and then if you just look at it the right way, everything snaps into focus and it pops out at you in 3D. At first, it's easy to read this passage and think, what the heck is Jesus talking about? Uh, with the tower follow, falling and the blood mingling, and, and what does that have to do with gardening and fig trees? But once you see what Jesus is saying in this passage, you can't unsee it. What Jesus is saying is this. Uh, when you read the morning headlines, you know, as many of us have done this week, you open up Twitter and you read about a uh, condo complex in Miami collapsing and numerous people dying. When you, read acts of, uh, uh, when you read about acts of gross injustice, our first thought should not be, how outrageous is this? How, who can I blame? But rather, Jesus is saying, our first response ought to be, how tragic? How am I implicated in this? What responsibility do I have here? Our vocation as followers of Jesus is to move into a broken world responsibly, uh, when confronted with the horror of a culture in free fall, we don't stand at a distance and evaluate, figure out how we can place blame. Rather, we get our hands in the mess. We move towards that brokenness with humility. We, we take responsibility. And the Bible's word for taking responsibility can be summed up, I think, with the word repentance. Repentance requires and implies both responsibility and humility. And Jesus is saying here that our vocation in the world as those people who bear his name is to be people who repent, it is to be people who help others repent, and it is to build places where it is safe to repent. You know, we are a, a Protestant church and the Protestant Reformation began over the question of repentance. In 1519, when Martin Luther went and nailed his 95 theses on the door of the castle church in Wittenberg, Germany, he had 95 propositions he wanted to debate, and this was the first. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he willed that the entire Life of believers be one of repentance. The life of a believer is a life of repentance. That's what we affirm as Protestant Christians. And that's what Jesus is talking about in this passage. Our responsibility in the way that we interact with the world is to be people who repent, who help others repent, and to create a place where it is safe to repent. 
But what does repentance mean? I think there's a lot of misunderstandings about the word. Um, you know, the, the section he- heading in my Bible here says repent or perish, which sounds like something, uh, you know, a, a sign. A guy would be holding up with a sign on a street corner shouting at people. What does repentance mean? There's a lot of, I think, misunderstandings. We think maybe repentance means feeling guilty for bad things that we have done. We think of repentance as giving up on our private sins or getting religious or joining some church or religious movement. Or some people, uh, maybe we think about repentance as sort of like a way to tip the scales back in our favor. Sure, I've done some things that are bad, but you know, then I repent and I sort of balance the scales. But none of this is what Jesus means when he uses the word repent or when he talks about repentance. There's an interesting um, historical analogy, um, and not comparison, but, but something else that happened in history around the time of, Je- uh, of Jesus. Uh, Flavius Josephus was a Jewish author. He wrote a, uh, a history of the Jewish wars in the first century and um, lived, uh, was born slightly after the death of Jesus. And he was sent by the Romans to convince the Galilean Jews who were rising up against the Roman government uh, in the 60s AD to lay down their weapons and stop fighting and join with Rome. And Josephus used these words. He approaches the leader of the Galilean rebels and he says to him these words, repent and believe in me. Now, when Josephus said, repent and believe in me, he was not inviting these Jews to experience a religious conversion. Repentance, rather, means something more like this. Give up your agenda and take up mine. Stop following yourself and follow me. Repentance, of course, includes sorrow over our sins, but it's more than that. To repent, it means to turn around, it, re- it means to, uh, it's an admission of guilt. It means I have been living and thinking life the wrong way. Repentance, in other words, is a change of heart which leads to a change in behavior. To repent, in the words of Jesus, is to stop living to yourself and to live to God instead. So two things I want to highlight in what Jesus says in, uh, in this passage in the first and second part. And the first thing that I think we see in this passage is that repentance is deeply unnatural. D- repentance is not um, a natural activity for human beings. Repentance has come Uh, repentance has to be one of the most unnatural things that we can do in the sense that repenting runs counter to our natural inclinations. There are two incidents that Jesus talks about here. Um, There's this incident where Pilate uh, has murdered, somehow murdered Jews as they were in the midst of offering sacrifices. And as if that wasn't heinous enough to add insult and offense to injury, he then mingles their blood with the blood of the animals that they had sacrificed. It's a, a particularly heinous offense in the eyes of religious Jews. And the question Jesus is hypothetically asking is, why did this happen? Was it because these people were particularly heinous sinners? The ju- second thing Jesus references is a tower that falls down and it kills 18 people when it collapses. The Pharisees, Jesus 
you know, opponents or adversaries, or at least they thought of themselves as the opponents of Jesus, taught that misfortune was brought on by God to punish people for their sin. And so they are asking essentially, are these people worse than the rest of us because these terrible misfortunes happened to them? Isn't the fact that I did not die when this tower fell proof, in other words, of my righteousness? And Jesus' response completely undermines their attempts at self-justification. Jesus says, no, but when you hear of these atrocities, you know, when you're, when you're scrolling through your Twitter feed and you see images of a natural disaster, an earthquake in Haiti, a tsunami in Japan, a flood, a hurricane, when you see these images, don't rush to assign blame, thereby justifying yourself. Instead, rush to repent. When you hear of natural disasters and other calamities, you should repent, Jesus says. Why? Because we deserve the same thing. Because we deserve the same thing. That's, that's what he's saying in verse 3 and in verse 5. Repent, repent, repent. No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Jesus is saying it's not the victims of these disasters who are especially guilty. It is all of us. Repent and cast yourself on God's mercy because we all deserve the same thing. You know, I talk to people all the time who, uh, it's an interesting thing as a pastor, uh, as soon as you tell somebody, somebody, as soon as somebody asks me, what do you do for a living? This is happening all the time as I've just moved and meeting neighbors and new people for the first time. What do you do? And as soon as I say, uh, well, I'm a pastor, it sort of like puts a pretty fine point on the conversation. And often people, uh, you know, feel some need to justify their own worldview or will say something along the lines of, you know, I'm not perfect. I'm not a perfect person, but I think God is pretty happy with me. I think my good deeds outweigh my my bad deeds, and you know, on the whole, I think God, God, God accepts me. God accepts me. As I talk with people, and as I think about who I am, I am increasingly convinced that that sort of response is elicited because we are all deeply insecure people. We wrestle with uh, loneliness. We wrestle with image, uh, body image. We uh, look at our self-worth based on our performance. So we are afraid to make mistakes. We are afraid to disappoint others. We all have, in some ways, a sense of uh, feeling like we are out of place. We long for a, uh, a relationship, a friendship, a romantic relationship that will make us feel alive. And yet we are afraid of those very relationships. We want to belong, but we are afraid to be known. And in so many other ways, we are all deeply insecure. Repentance is so unnatural to us because we are all, I think, in a sense, wondering, what if God sees me uh, as I really am? What if God looks and sees me exactly as I see myself? Repentance requires that we dispense with vague talk about being generally a pretty good person, and acknowledge that at uh, the deepest level, we are each uniquely uh, but profoundly broken people. Repentance means being honest about who we are and taking responsibility for that reality. 
And so it is deeply unnatural to us. But the second thing that I think we see in this passage is such good news, and it's this that change is possible, and that repentance is deeply healing. I mean, we can't miss the point of Jesus' parable, which is that you were created to bear fruit. You were created to bear fruit. And repentance is the deeply healing process whereby God grows fruit as the overflow of your life. Jesus talks about these two strange incidents, and then he follows his encouragement to repent with this parable about a fig tree that for three years has borne no fruit. He's telling a parable. It's not a historic event. It's a, it's a story. But he, he says there's this, this man who owns a vineyard, and he goes to his vineyard, and there's a fig tree that has been taking up space, wasting space for three years. It hasn't borne any fruit. And this man says to his gardener, cut it down. Why should it be wasting my, 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 my ground anymore? We could build some, uh, plant something here that will actually bear fruit. And the gardener says, give me one more year. And let me fertilize it and put manure on it. And let's see if in a year it will produce fruit. And if it doesn't, then cut it down. Jesus follows this exhortation to repent with a parable about this dead and useless fig tree being brought back to life so that it bears fruit and health. But the only hope of changing, the only hope of being brought back to life and health comes through, Jesus is saying, repentance. Gospel repentance is not this awful, painful experience that we do once and hold our nose and hope to never have to do it again. It's rather an ongoing process that brings healing. Now, I mean, how could that be? Well, imagine uh, if you have been in a, in a relationship or in, a, in, a, in an argument with somebody you love, a spouse, a parent, a friend, and you've been in, a, in an argument where you have each said things that um, you said to hurt the other person, and maybe you've gotten to the end of this argument and, and it's begun to begin to summer, simmer down, but you have not yet, uh, no apologies have as yet been made. Your relationship with that person is, is fractured and it's going to be hard to relate to them in a normal, everyday sort of way until an apology has been made. Now there are, I think, in that situation, two ways to resolve it. The first is that you can just try to ignore it and you can wait until the feelings of pain have subsided and you can just stuff your feelings. You can just bury them until the next time you get into an argument in which, uh, at which time they will all come rushing back and resurface all over again. Or you can repent. You can look at this person you love that you care about and say, I'm sorry, I was wrong. I've hurt you. Will you please forgive me? Repentance is the only way for healing to come into that relationship. And if that is true in your relationships with other humans, and if it's especially true in your most intimate of relationships, then how much more true is that in, or how much more is that the case as we relate to the God of the universe? Repentance is what removes the thing that has become, become between us and God. Uh, repentance is us taking responsibility, rather, for the thing that has, become, that has become between us and God. 
and asking Jesus to own it on our behalf, that healing might come. So um, there's a thing that happens regularly in my life, and this is going to sound a little bit weird, but when I go to, when I, the, uh, whenever I walk into Costco, I'm always reminded of this passage <laughs> about repentance. And uh, the, th- the, the reason is because you walk into Costco and there's this smell. There's this kind of this aroma. And as soon as you, as soon as I breathe in and try to like focus on it, it goes away and I, I can't, um, I can't actually smell it anymore, but it's because of the tires. You know, the tires for sale at Costco produce this aroma, like right, at least at our old Costco, right by the entrance. And every time I go into Costco, uh, the overwhelming aroma of tires just fills our nostrils, my nostrils. The overwhelming aroma of our lives and our church must be the aroma of repentance. And when the aroma of our lives is repentance, our friends and our neighbors and our coworkers and our family members will intuitively uh, sense it even though they can't put their finger exactly on what it is. And they will begin to understand that we are people with whom it is safe to repent. One of my favorite questions to ask of um, aspiring leaders in Christian circles, whether that's younger pastors, whether that's um, an elder or elder candidate, one of my favorite questions to ask somebody who aspires to a place of leadership in the church is this. Can you tell me about a time that you've repented for something recently? The answer to that question, I think, is more revealing than any look at someone's resume or experience or their knowledge or their willingness to you know, pray in public or something like that. Because the reality is this, that for uh, the church and for those who lead in the church, it is our job to help people repent. That's why we're here. Yes, we teach. Yes, we give advice. Yes, you know, we tell funny stories. We organize. We administer. We plan small groups. We plan events for people to get together. We plan ways to serve in our community. But above all, it is our job to help build a place where people feel safe to repent. Our church has to be a safe place to repent. It has to be a place to be honest about who we are. We cannot be the church that does things better than the church down the street, that finally has all the right answers. We must be the church where it is safe to repent. So what does that look like? How do we actually do that? How do we create that kind of of an ethos and an environment? Well, first of all, we have to be people who repent. <laughs> and, you know, we, we create a safe place to repent by actually repenting, by confessing our failures, by uh, leading with vulnerability. We have to be praying. Uh, we have to be praying for people and, and pr- praying that we would be a place that is safe to repent. We have to be prepared for the fact that when messy people come into our lives, that they will bring their mess with them that that will not be surprising, that, the, 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 that people bringing their mess will not shock us. How are we going to respond to somebody's startling admission of guilt? We have to be wise about the sorts of conversations that we have so that we're not subtly saying to people, well, people like that aren't, 
aren't welcome here. How are we ever going to become that kind of a group? How are we ever going to become that sort of a church where we repent and we help others repent and we build a place where it is safe to repent so that we might become more fully the people that God is calling us to do? Well, the truth of the matter is that we will never be people who repent just by reading this passage and then willing ourselves to repent. We will only become people repent when we are utterly convinced that we have a Father who loves us and we have no risk of being found out by him. I remember uh, years ago when my kids were younger, three, four, five, and uh, they would love to play hide and seek. And every little kid loves playing hide and seek. And I remember my oldest, you know, playing hide and seek with him and telling him, okay, I'm going to count to, you know, 10, and then I'm going to come and hide you. You go hide. I'm going to count to 10. I'm going to come and find you. And I would, uh, you know, count. He would go run away. And seven, eight, nine, 10. Ready or not, here I come. And he would pop out and say, here I am. And I, no, no. And I'd sit him down and explain how it works. Like, you hide. I count, and then I find you. And we do it again, eight, nine, ten, ready or not, here I come. And he pops out and says, here I am. And he started thinking, like, what is wrong? Is this kid slow? Like, what's going on? But eventually, over time, I realized that he wanted to be found. He had no fear of being found out by his dad. He loved his dad, and he wanted his dad to find him. This is a little boy who had no need to hide because he doesn't doubt that his father loves him. And friends, that is the same for you and for me. We will only become people who repent when we are utterly convinced that we have a father who loves us. 2,000 years ago, a little baby was born. And that boy grew into a man and at his baptism, God the Father says to Jesus, this is my dearly loved son. He brings me great joy. And the truth of the gospel is this, that Jesus lived a life fully and completely and perfectly for you. So when God the Father looks at you as you are in Christ, he says to you what he says to his own son. You are my child. You bring me great joy. And then Jesus goes to the cross, exchanging places with us, taking our sin, our shame, our guilt, our death, and he gives us his perfection, his beauty, and his, his life in exchange. So God the Father says to you exactly what he says of Jesus. You are my child who I love. You bring me great joy. Someone who knows the depths of Jesus' sacrifice for them has no need to hide from God. Someone who knows the depth of Jesus' sacrifice for them has no need to be afraid of who they are. Someone who knows the depths of Jesus' sacrifice for them doesn't need to look down on the person who uh, votes differently or says the awkward thing in a group or asks stupid questions. Someone who knows the depth of Jesus' sacrifice for them doesn't need to be afraid of repentance because he looks at his own life and says, you know, there's, there's a lot of stuff here that I'm not especially proud of. And so it would be far better to die to myself and to live towards God. And that's what repentance looks like. Amen.